Part Two of Victory by Lester Del Rey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Victory by Lester Del Rey. Section Six. Barth Nevish was nearly seven feet tall, and his cat-shaped ears stuck up another four inches above his head. Even among the people of Kell he was a big man, but to the representatives of the other humanoid worlds of the Federation he seemed a giant. The thick furs he wore against the heavy chill of the room added to his apparent size, and the horns growing from his shoulders lifted his robes until he seemed to have no neck. Now he stood up, driving his heavy fist down against the big wooden table. The question is, do we have the answer or not, he roared. You say we do. Logic says we do. Then let's act on it. The elfin figure of Lemmy Lulot straightened up at the other end of the table. Not so fast, Commander. Nobody questions the power of your fleet. Nobody doubts that we have the only possible answer to the aliens that Earth is helping to take over our universe. Strength through unity. But is it as good as it can be? How better, Barth roared again. Every world in this alien pocket has been building its strength since the Earthmen's ships first reached here and showed us space travel was possible. We've seen these stinking aliens get the same ships, but now we've got something they can't resist. A Federation. In spite of all Earth could do to stop us, if all our fleets strike at once, no alien world can resist, and we can stop merely holding them back. Wipe them out. One by one, I say. The only good alien is a dead alien. There was a lot of talk, more than Barth usually heard or contributed in a month. Lemmy Lulot was the focus of most of it. The little man would never be satisfied. He wanted all the humanoid worlds organized, and by now it was plain that Earth's influence would be too strong outside of their own section. Their accomplishments were already enough. United as they were, the Federation was clearly invincible. Their fleets were at full size, and the crews were thoroughly trained. No other time would be better. There had already been a stir of shipbuilding on the alien worlds since the first word of the Federation had somehow leaked out. The Federation position was as good as it would ever be, and with eleven fleets working together, nothing better was needed. Knock them down with the long shells, haze them to base with interceptors, and then rip their worlds with planet bombs. Barth repeated his plans. We can do it in six hours for a planet. We can start at the strongest, Nephilus, and work down through the weakest to make up for our losses. And if the Earth forces start moving in to rebuild them, well, I've been thinking the Federation could use a little more wealth and power. Humanoids don't attack humanoids, Lemmy Lulot protested. The snarling dog face of Sra from Chumkit opened in a grin, and his sly voice held a hint of a chuckle. Or so Earth keeps preaching. But Earthmen aren't humanoids. They're humans. He laughed softly at his own wit. There were rumbles of uncertainty, but Barth saw that the seed had taken root. If they kept working together, he and Sra could force it to ripen soon enough. That can wait, Barth decided. The question is, do we attack Nephilus, and when? I say, now. It took an hour more for the decision, but there would be only one answer, and the final vote was unanimous. The fleets would take off from their home worlds and rendezvous near the barren sun. From there they would proceed in a group under the control of Barth toward the alien world of Nephilus.
The commander checked his chronometer as the delegates went to send their coded reports to their home worlds. He had the longest distance to lead his fleet, and there was no time for delay. Outside the harsh snow crackled under his feet, and a layer of storm clouds cut off the wan heat of Kel's sun. He drew in a deep breath, watching the swirl of white as he exhaled. It was a good world, a world to build men. It was the world from which a leader should come. The fleet would be all his within a day, and for a time it would be busy at the work of wiping out the nearby aliens. After that, well, there were other aliens further out towards the last frontiers of exploration. With care, the fleet could be kept busy for years. Barth was remembering his histories and the armies that had been swept together. In a few years, fighting men began to think of themselves as a people apart, and loyalty to their birthplace gave way to loyalty to their leader. Five years should be enough. Then there could be more than a federation. There could be the empire among the worlds that had been his lifelong dream. But first there was Earth. He snorted to himself as he reached the ships of his fleet. Missionaries, spreading their soft fear through the universe. In five years his fleets should be ready for ten times the power of any single planet, including Earth. Sra would be the only problem in his way, but that could be met later. For the moment the man from Chumkit was useful. Barth strode up the ramp of his flagship, shouting out to his men as he went. There was no need of signals. They had been primed and waiting for days, ready to follow him. He dropped to the control seat, staring at the little lights that would tell him of their progress. Up ship, he shouted, and from the metal halls and caverns of the ship other voices echoed his cry. The wind dragon leaped upwards sharply. Behind, as the red lights showed, four hundred others charged into the sky and the open space beyond. Barth sat at the great screen, watching as they drew on steadily toward the rendezvous, mulling over his plans. They were three hours out from Kell when he turned the control over to his lieutenant and went below, where his table was laden with the smoking cheer of good green meat and ale. With a sigh of contentment he threw back his outer robe and prepared to forget everything until he had dined. He was humming hoarsely to himself as he cut a piece of the meat and stuck it on his left shoulder horn within reach of his teeth. Maybe a little of the baked fish would blend well. The emergency drum blasted through the ship as he lifted the knife. Swearing and tearing at the flesh near his mouth, he leaped up and forward toward the control room. He heard voices shouting something about a fleet. Then he was at the screens where he could see for himself. Five million miles ahead another fleet was assembled, where none should be from any of the Federation worlds. His eyes swept sideways across the screen, estimating the number. It was impossible there weren't a quarter of that number in the fleet of any world, humanoid or alien. Barth flipped on the micro-resolver, twisting the wheel that sent it racing across the path of the fleet ahead. His eyes confirmed what his mind had already recognized. The aliens had their own Federation. There were ships of every type there, grouped in units. Thirteen alien worlds were combined against the Outer Federation. For a breath he hesitated, ready to turn back and defend Kell while there was time. But it would never work. One fleet would never be enough to defend the planet against the combined aliens. Cluster, he barked into the communicator. Out rams and up speed. Prepare for breakthrough. If they could hit the aliens at full drive and cut through the weaker center, they could still rendezvous with the other fleets. The combined strength might be enough, and the gods help Kel if the aliens refused to follow him. Earth, he thought, Earth again. 
coddling and protecting aliens, forming them into a conspiracy against the humanoid worlds. If Kel or any part of the Federation survived, that debt would be paid. Section 7 Earth lay flat and smug under the sun, seemingly unchanged since Duke had left it. For generations the populace had complained that they were draining themselves dry to rebuild other worlds, but they had grown rich on the investment. It was the only planet where men worked shorter and shorter hours to give them more leisure in which to continue a frantic effort to escape boredom. It was also the only world where the mention of aliens made men think of their order books instead of their weapons. Duke walked steadily away from the grotesquely elaborate landing field. He had less than thirty cents in his pocket, but his breakfast aboard had left him satisfied for the moment. He turned onto a wider street, heading the long distance across the city towards the most probable location of the recruiting stations. The Outer Federation station would be off the main section, since the official line was disapproving of such a union, but he was sure there would be one. The system of recruiting was a tradition too hard to break. Earth used it as an escape valve for her troublemakers, and since such volunteers made some of the best of all fighters, they had already decided the outcome of more than one war. By carefully juggling the attention given the stations, Earth could influence the battles without seeming to do so. The air was thick with the smell of late summer, and there was pleasure in that, until Duke remembered the odor of Miloa and its cause. Later the cloying perfume of women mixed with the normal industrial odors of the city, until his nose was overdriven to the point of cut-off. He saw things in the shop windows that he had forgotten, but he had no desire for them. And over everything came the incessant yammer of voices saying nothing, radios blaring, television babbling, and vending machines shouting. He gave up at last and invested half of his small fund in a subway. It was equally noisy, but it took less time. Beside him, a fungoid creature from Clovis was busy practicing silently on its speaking machine, but nobody else seemed to notice. Duke's head was spinning when he reached the surface again. He stopped to let it clear, wondering if he'd ever found this world home. It wouldn't matter soon, though. Once he was signing up at the recruiting station, there would be no time to think. He saw the sign only a few blocks from where the recruiting posters for Miloa had been so long ago. It was faded, but he could read the lettering, and he headed for it. As he had expected, it was on a dirty back street where the buildings were a confusion of shipping concerns and cheaper apartment houses. He knew something was wrong when he was a block away. There was no pitch being delivered by a barking machine, and no idle group watching the recruiting efforts on the street. In fact, nobody was in front of the vacant store that had been used, and the big posters were ripped down. He reached the entrance and stopped. The door was half open, but it carried a notice that the place had been closed by order of the World Foreign Office. Through the dirty glass Duke could see a young man of about twenty sitting slumped behind a battered desk. He stepped in and the boy looked up apathetically. You're too late, Captain. Neutrality went on hours ago when the first word came through. Caught me just ready to ship out. After two lousy months recruiting here, I have to be the one stranded. You're lucky, Duke told him mechanically, not sure whether he meant it or not. Oddly, the idea of a kid like this mixed up in an interplanetary war bothered him. He turned to go, then hesitated. Got a newspaper or a directory around that I could borrow? The boy fished a paper out of a wastebasket. It's all yours, Captain. The whole place is yours. Slam the door when you go out. I'm going over to the Cathay office. I'll go along, Duke offered. 
The address of that place was all he'd wanted from the paper. He'd have preferred the Federation to joining up with Earth colonists, but beggars never made good choosers. The kid shook his head. He dragged open a drawer, found a slip of paper, and handed it over. It was a notice that the legal maximum age for recruiting had been reduced to thirty. You'd never make it, Captain, he said. Duke looked at the paper in his hands and at the dim reflection of his face in a window. No, he agreed. I didn't make it. He followed the boy to the door, staring out at the street thick with its noises and smells. He dropped to the door-sill and looked up briefly at the sky where two ships were cutting out to space. Flannery had known the regulation and hadn't told him. Yet it was his own fault. The age limit was lower now, but there had always been a limit. He had simply forgotten that he had grown older. He found it hard to realize he'd been no older than the kid when he'd signed up for the war with Throm. For a while he sat looking at the street, trying to realize what had happened to him. It took time to face the facts. He listened with half his attention as a small group of teenage boys came from one of the buildings and began exchanging angry insults with another group, apparently waiting for them on the corner. From their attitudes some of them were carrying weapons and were half eager, half afraid to use them. It was hard to remember back to the time when such things had seemed important to him. He considered putting a stop to the argument before it got out of hand, since no police were near, but adults had no business in kid fights. He watched them retreat slowly back to an alley, still shouting to work up their courage. Maybe he should be glad that there was even this much fire left under the smug placidity of Earth. Finally he picked up the newspaper from where he'd dropped it and began turning back to the wantads. His needs were few, and there should be dishwashing jobs at least somewhere in the city. He still had to eat and find some place to sleep. A headline glared up at him, catching his attention. He started to skim the story and then read it thoroughly. Things weren't going at all as he'd expected in the outer worlds if the account were true, and usually such battle reports weren't altered much. The aliens had developed a union of their own, if anything a stronger one than the humanoids had. Apparently they'd chased the Federation ships into some kind of trap. Losses on both sides were huge, and raids had begun on all the alien and humanoid planets. He scowled as he came to the latest developments. One section of the Federation fleet under Shra of Chumkit had pulled out, accusing the faction headed by Barth Nevish of leading the aliens to the humanoid rendezvous. Kell's leader had gone after the deserters, fought it out with them in the middle of the larger battle, killed Shra, and declared himself the head of the whole Federation. It was madness that should have led to complete annihilation. Only the fumbling, uncoordinated leadership of the aliens had saved the humanoid fleets. And now the Federation was coming apart at the seams, with Barth Nevish frantically scurrying around to catch up the pieces. Duke read it through again, but with no added information. It was a shock to know that the aliens had combined against the humanoid Federation. Still, looking back on that, he could begin to see that they would have to once they knew of the Federation. But the rest of the account... Flannery's words came back to him. The director had been right. His prediction was already coming true, after only three days. Unless he had either had prior knowledge or juggled things to make it come true. Duke considered it, but he could see no way Flannery could either learn or act in advance of the arrival of the ship on Earth. The Federation was farther from Miloa than from this planet. He'd been forced to depend on the same accounts Duke had read in the papers on board the ship. 
Then Duke glanced at the date on the current paper idly, and his thoughts jolted completely out of focus. It was dated only three days later than the paper he had seen when they were docked on Clovis. Without instantaneous communication it was impossible. He might have been mistaken about the date before, but nothing fitted. The feeling of uncertainty came back, crowding out the minor matter of his memory of the date. He stared at the richness of even this poor section of an earth that huddled here as if afraid of its own shadows, yet reeked with self-satisfaction. He thought of Miloa and Thram, and the gallant try at Federation that had been made on the outer worlds. Strength had to lie in union and action, yet all the evidence seemed to say that it lay in timidity and sloth. Reluctantly he turned the page away from the news to seek for the job sections. From the alley there came the sound of a police whistle, and shouts that faded into the distance. It was probably the breaking up of the teenage argument. A few people ran by, heading for the excitement, but Duke had lost all interest. A taxi stopped nearby, and he heard a patter that might have been that of children's feet, but he didn't look up. Then a sharper whistle shrilled almost in his ear, and he twisted around to stare at a creature who was gazing at him. Four spindly legs led up to a globular body encased in a harness-like contraption. Above the body two pairs of thin arms were waving about, while a long neck ended in a bird-like head topped by two large ears. The ears suddenly seemed to shimmer in the air, and a surprisingly human voice sounded. "'You're Captain Duke O'Neill!' Before Duke could answer, a small hand came out quickly to find his and begin shaking it, while the ears twittered on in excitement. "'I'm honored to meet you, Captain O'Neill. I've been studying your work against Throm. Amazingly clever strategy. Uh, permit me. I'm Queeth, lately a prince of Shugfarth. Perhaps you noticed our ship. No, of course not. Y you must have landed at the government field. My crew and I are on the way to the war, about to begin between Clumeria and Cathay.' Why tell me about it? Duke asked roughly. Shugfarth, the ships he'd seen diagrammed, had come from there. If one of those titans was to be used against Cathay, Earth's colony was doomed, and the impertinent little monster— The creature tried to imitate a shrug with his upper set of arms. Why not, Captain? We're registered here as a recruiting ship for Cathay, so it's no secret. We thought we might as well carry along some of the men going out to help, since we had to pass near Earth anyhow, and I dropped by here in the hope that there might be a few who had failed to join the Federation and who would like to switch to Cathay." "'Wait a minute,' Duke said. He studied the alien, trying to rake what he'd learned from the article out of his memory, but no record of subtlety or deceit had been listed there. The Shugfarth were supposed to be honest. In fact, they'd been one of the rare races to declare their war in advance. Somehow, too, the words had a ring of truth in them. For Cathay? Certainly, Captain. For whom else? The civilized Earth races naturally have to stick together against the barbarians. Duke stared at the almost comic figure, juggling the words he had heard with the obvious facts. What Earth races do you mean? That Earth is now giving citizenship to your people? Not on this planet, of course, a pair of beady black eyes stared back, as if trying to understand a ridiculous question. But we're citizens of Earth's economic-cultural-diplomatic system, naturally. Duke felt something nibble at his mind, but he couldn't grasp it, and he wasn't accustomed to carrying on long chit-chat with aliens. He shoved the thoughts away and reached for the paper again. You won't find recruits here, Queeth. Only me. 
and I'm too old for the recruiting law. Besides, I've got to find a job." He turned the pages, locating the column he wanted. What had Flannery meant about Republican Rome? Duke could remember dimly something about Rome's granting citizenship to her conquered neighbors. It had been the basis of the city's growth and later power. Now if Earth could inspire citizenship from conquered aliens— Queeth made a sound like a sigh and shuffled his four feet on the sidewalk uncertainly. If you came aboard on a visit, who could stop our taking off at once, he suggested. We have room for another officer, and we need men like you, Captain O'Neill, to help us against the aliens out there. Duke looked down at the small face, and even the alien features couldn't disguise the obvious sincerity behind the words. It should have made his decision automatic. He'd come here to be recruited, and he was being accepted. There was a ship waiting for him where his skills could be used. With such a ship, things would be different from the war he had known. He had a picture of Clumeria under attack from it. Abruptly, he was seeing again the exploding ships of Throm. And the charnel smell of Cordul on victorious Meloa was thick in his nose. He stood up, shaking his head, and held out his hand, groping for the phrases that had been all important once among the recruits he had joined. Thanks, Queeth, he said finally, but I've got something to catch up on here. Good luck. On to victory. And give the aliens hell. He stood watching Queeth patter off toward the waiting cab and saw it drive away. Then he turned to the wantads in earnest. Nothing was clear in his mind yet, but he'd need a job first, then a room near the library. He had a lot of current history to catch up on. Whatever Earth was up to had to be recorded somewhere if he could find it. Section 8 Through half his reign, Var of Glumeria had nursed his hatred of the humans into a holy mission. It was eighty years since his visit to Cathay when the colonists' children had run screaming from him, shouting that he was a monster. But time had only sharpened the memory. He had covered his too-human body under a multitude of robes, and had gloried in the alienness of his head with its fringe of breathing tentacles and the two lobster-like claws that concealed his tiny mouth. Year after long year he had built and prayed for the war of vengeance that must come. Almost it had passed him by. With the threat of help from Earth for Cathay, he had been forced to delay while larger fleets were built. His reign had been drawing to a close, and he had almost resigned himself to the law that would turn the rulership over to his eldest son. Then the boy had died in an explosion less than a week from the change of rule, and almost simultaneously Earth's timidity had won again, and the protection had been denied her colony. Now Var's waiting was finished. He stood in the cabin of his flagship heading back to Clemeria after the opening raid of the war, savoring the sweetness of the damage he had done Cathay. Life was sweet. Behind him the door dilated softly, and his aide came in carrying a roll of paper. A message from Cathay, Magnificence, he announced. Var opened the message and studied it. Then he read it again, uncertainly. He was sure of his knowledge of English, but the note was senseless gibberish. Again he read it, this time aloud. Yours of the fourteenth Ultimo received and contents noted. We are pleased to inform you that we are in a position to fill your entire order, and that shipment is going out at once by special messenger. We trust that you will find our products superior in every way. We believe that you will find our terms completely reasonable." It made no more sense aloud. The aide sighed apologetically. Deliberately misapplied archaicism is sometimes regarded as humorous by Earthmen magnificence. 
I suspect this is a warning that they are retaliating. Bluff! Far read the words again, but he could make no other meaning from them. Did the fools expect him to believe their flippancy spelled confidence, or were they deceiving themselves? And the hint of surrender terms was sheer stupidity. It must be an offer, though the wording seemed to indicate that he should surrender. He threw the message into a waste receptacle in disgust and went over to look at the screens where Clumeria was showing. The humans of Cathay might try a return raid, but he was unworried. Cathay's fleet was pitiful, and she had no heavy ships from which to launch planet bombs. Of course, there were spy reports of vast numbers of what seemed to be guided missiles, but they could never get through the confusion signals that blanketed Clumeria. As he watched, a signal blinked. He opened the circuit, and the face of his admiral looked out. We've received indications of a swarm of small ships, Magnificence, the man reported. High speed and piloted. It may be a suicide squadron. Suicide? Var spat the word out. Whoever heard of the human cowards risking their necks? The aide touched his shoulder apologetically. They were mentioned in Earth books, Magnificence, and there was Jambula. Var stared at the screen as the flight was relayed to him, snarling. Definitely they were one-man ships, not guided missiles. His defenses had never been built to handle suicide squadrons. Up! Surround them! Blast them! he ordered. A few might get through to the ships or to the planet below, but quick action would wreak havoc among them and discourage further attempts. The Clumerian fleet opened into a circle and began rising. Now the swarm of little ships began breaking apart, fanning out and attempting to turn. Var hissed. Not even the courage to go through with it after they were discovered. They— He leapt to the screen, cursing at what he saw. Where the little ships had opened a hole, a monstrous bulk was hurtling through at fantastic speed. The tiny ships had screened it, but now it outran them, boring straight toward the opening in the Clumerian fleet. Atomic cannon began rushing out of enormous hatches like the bristles jutting from a tendril bush. Blast out! Var screamed into his engine phone. His flagship leapt away at full drive, while the enemy seemed to grow on the screen. Then it diminished as they began drawing away from the fleet. There was nothing Var could do about the horror that followed. The great vessel bored through the fleet with cannons spitting out hell. If countershots were fired, they had no effect. Shugfarth, the aide screamed in his ears, a ship from Shugfarth. Var remembered the pictures he had seen, and they matched, though none had suggested such a size. It was impossible. The race of Shugfarth were aliens, warriors who had fought humanoids as few races had done. They would have fought with him, not against him. The ship drove down toward the planet, breaking fiercely now. From it two bulky objects fell. While the planet bombs dropped, the behemoth began to rise again. It came through the shattered ranks of Clumeria's fleet, blasting again, and headed toward the tiny ships that had screened it, new hatches opening to receive them. Half of Var's fleet was in total ruin. On the planet below, two horrible gouts of flame leapt up through the atmosphere and beyond it, while all of Clumeria seemed to tremble as half a continent was ruined. Var stared down at the destruction, unmoving. The aide coughed, holding out another roll of paper. Cathay is broadcasting an appeal for us to surrender without reprisals, Magnificence, and the estate governors are demanding fleet protection. Var crushed the paper in his hands without reading it. It would take half the remaining part of the fleet to give even token protection to Clumeria. His plans had never been based on holding back the seemingly weak forces of Cathay. No answer, he said. His hand reached for the communicator switch, and he began issuing orders. 
The fleet will regroup and return to base for immediate repairs and rearming. Commanders of all ships will prepare to take off against Cathay within six hours. Somehow the humans had to be crushed completely before they could destroy Clumeria. After that, if any of his race survived, there would be a mission for all future generations. Only the power of Earth could have sent the alien ship from Shugfarth, loaded with cannon and bombs, to fight against fellow aliens. Earth had declared neutrality, and then struck. For such villainy a million years was not too long to seek vengeance. Section 9 Night had fallen in the park beyond the huge foreign office building, and the air was damp and cool. Duke shivered in the shadows that covered his bench. He should head back to his room, but he had no desire to listen again to the meaningless chatter that came through the thin walls. Time didn't matter to him now, anyhow. He swore and reached for a cigarette, brushing the crumpled newspaper from his lap. He'd been a fool to think Flannery would bother with him, just as he'd been a fool to turn down Queeth's offer. He'd wasted his day off from the messenger job. Footsteps sounded down the walk that led past his bench, and he drew deeper into the shadows. The steps slowed, and a man moved to the other end of the bench. Duke drew heavily on his cigarette, tossed it away, and started to get up. Drink? There was a hand holding a flask in front of him. He hesitated, then took it and let a long slug run down his throat. In the faint light he could make out the face of Director Flannery. The man nodded. Sorry I was out when you came, O'Neill. One of the guards saw you out here, so I came over. You should have been in, Duke said, handing the flask back. I've changed my mind since reading about some of your deals in the journal. Well, thanks for the drink. One of Flannery's prosthetic hands rested on Duke's shoulder, and the pressure was surprisingly heavy. When a man takes a drink with me, Captain, he waits until I finish mine. He tipped up the flask and drank slowly before putting it away. I suppose you mean the Cathay Clumeria mess. What else? Mess was a mild word. The Shugfarth ship had seemed to make victory for Cathay certain the first few days, but the war had entered a new phase now. Cathay couldn't maintain the big ship, and it was practically useless. It had simply served to reduce Clumeria to a position where both sides were equal. The war showed signs of setting down to another prolonged, exhausting affair. Yeah, I read the editorial, Flannery sighed. We did let a couple of fools make Cathay think we'd bail her out. At the time it seemed wise. The son of old Var was due to assume rule in a little while, and he was strongly pro-human. We wanted to hold things off until he took over and scrapped the war plans. When he was killed, well, we pulled out before Var was any stronger. And sent Queeth's crowd in to do your bloodletting for you, Duke sneered. That was their own idea, Flannery denied. He lighted a cigarette and sat staring at the end of it, blowing out a slow stream of smoke. All right. We made a mess of Cathay. We'll know better next time. Care to walk back with me? Why? So one of your trained psychopropagandists can indoctrinate me, or to get me drunk and cry over your confession? To keep me from sinking to your level and pushing your nose down your throat, Flannery told him, but there was no real anger in his voice. He stood up, shrugging. Nobody's forcing you, O'Neill. Say the word and I'll drive you home. But if you want that explanation, my working office seems like a good place to talk. For a moment Duke wavered, but he'd reached the end of his own research and he'd come here to find the answers. Leaving now would only make him more of a fool. Okay, he decided, I'll stay for the big unveiling. Flannery grimaced. There's no great secret, though we don't broadcast the facts for people and races not ready for them. 
We figure those who finish growing up here will soak up most of it automatically. Did you get around to the film file on interstellar wars at the library? Duke nodded, wondering how much they knew about his activities. He'd spent a lot of time going over the film for clues. It was so old that the color had faded in places. The rest would have been easier to take without color. Most wasn't good photography, but all was vivid. It was the record of all the wars since Earth's invention of the high drive. Nearly two hundred of them. Gimsol, Hathor, Patek, Shugfarth, Clovis, and even Miloa. The part he hadn't seen, beyond Cordul, where the real damage lay. Rhonda had been wrong, and cannibalism had been discovered, along with much that was worse. Two hundred wars in which victor and vanquish alike had been ruined, in which the supreme effort needed to win had left most of the victors worse than the defeated systems. War. The word was bitter on Flannery's lips. Someone starts building war power, power to ensure peace, as they always say. Then other systems must have power to protect themselves. Strength begets force and fear and hatred. Sooner or later the strain is too great, and you have to have a war so horrible that its very horror makes surrender impossible. You saw it on Miloa. I've seen it fifty times. They reached the foreign office building and began crossing its lobby. Flannery glanced up at the big seal on the wall with its motto in twisted Latin, Per Astra Ad Aspera, and his eyes turned back to Duke's, but he made no comment. He led the way to a private elevator that dropped them a dozen levels below the street to a small room littered with things from every conceivable planet. One wall was covered with what seemed to be the control panel of a spaceship, apparently now used for a desk. The director dropped into a chair and motioned Duke to another. He looked tired, and his voice seemed older as he bent to pull a small projector and screen from a drawer and set them up. The latest chapter of the film, he said bitterly, throwing the switch. It was a picture of the breakup of the Outer Federation, and in some ways worse than the other wars. Jumkit rebelled against Kell's leadership and joined the aliens while a civil war sprang up on her surface. Two alien planets went over to Kell. The original war was forgotten in a struggle for new combinations, and a thousand smaller wars replaced it. The Federation was dead, and the two dozen races were dying. When everything else fails, the fools try Federation, Flannery said as the film ended. We tried it on Earth. Another race discovered the interstellar drive before we did and used it to build an empire. We found the dead and sterile remains of their civilization. It's always the same. When one group unites its power, those nearby must ally for protection. Then there's a scramble for more power, while jealousies and fears breed new hatreds, internally and externally. And finally there's ruin because at the technological level of interstellar travel, victory in war is absolutely, totally impossible. He sat back and Duke waited for him to resume until it was obvious he had finished. At last the younger man gave up waiting. All right, he said, Earth won't fight. Am I supposed to turn handsprings? I figured that much out myself, and I learned a long time ago about the blessed meek who were to inherit the Earth. But I can't remember anything being said about the stars. You think peace won't work? Flannery asked mildly. I know it won't. Duke fumbled for a cigarette, trying to organize his thoughts. You've been lucky so far. You've counted on the fact that war powers have to attack other powers nearby before they can safely strike against Earth. And you've buffered yourself with a jury-rigged economic trading system. But what happens when some really bright overlord decides to bypass his local enemies? 
He'll drop fifty planet bombs out of your peaceful skies and collect your vassal worlds before they can rearm. You won't know about that, though. You'll be wiped out." "'I wouldn't call our friends vassals or say the system was jury-rigged,' Flannery objected. Ever hear of paradynamics? The papers call it the ability to manipulate relationships when we let them write a speculative article. It's what lets us rebuild worlds in less than half a century, and form the first completely peaceful politico-economic culture we've ever known. Besides, I never said we had no weapons for our defense." Duke considered it, trying to keep a firm footing on the shifting quicksand of the other's arguments. He knew a little of paradynamics, of course, but only as something supposed to remake the world and all science in some abstract future. It had been originated as a complex mathematical analysis of nuclear relationships and had been seized on for some reason by the sociologists. It had no bearing, he could see, on the main argument. It won't wash, Flannery. Without a fleet it won't matter if you have the plans of every weapon ever invented. The first time a smart power takes the chance, you'll run out of time." We didn't. Flannery swung to the control board that served as his desk, and his fingers seemed to play idly with the dials. From somewhere below them there was a heavy vibration, as if great engines had sprung into life. He pressed another switch. Abruptly the room was gone. There was a night sky above them, almost starless, and with a great glaring moon shining down to show a rough, mossy terrain that seemed covered endlessly with row after row of rusting, crumbling spaceships. Atomic cannons spilled from their hatches, and broken ramps led down to the ground. Down one clearer lane among the countless ships that surrounded him, Duke saw what might be distant fire with a few bent figures around it, giving the impression of age. Beside him Flannery sat in his chair, holding a small control. There was nothing else of his office visible. The director shook his head. It's no illusion, O'Neill. You're here, fifty-odd thousand light-years from Earth, where we transferred the attacking fleet. You never heard of that, of course. The dictator-ruler naturally didn't make a report when his fleet simply vanished without a trace. Here. The liquor burned in Duke's throat, but it steadied him. He bent down to feel the mossy turf under his hand. It's real, Flannery repeated. Paradynamics handles all relationships, Captain, and the position of a body is simply a statement of its geometrical relationships. What happens if we change those relationships with power enough, that is? There is no motion in any classical sense, but newspapers appear two high-drive days away, minutes after they're printed. We arrive here, and fleets sent against Earth just aren't there any more. He pressed a button, and abruptly the walls of his office were around them again the office that was suddenly the control room of a building that was more of a battleship than any duke had ever seen. He found himself clutching the chair and forced himself to relax, soaking up the shock as he had soaked up so many others. His mind faced the facts, accepted them, and then sickly extended them. All right, you've got weapons, he admitted, and disgust was heavy in his voice. You can defend yourself, but can the galaxy defend itself when somebody decides it's a fine offensive weapon? Or are all Earthmen supposed to be automatically pure, so this will never be turned to offensive use? Prove that to me, and maybe I'll change my mind about this planet and take that job of yours." Flannery leaned back, nodding soberly. I intend to, he answered. Duke, we tried making peaceful citizens of our youngsters here a century ago, but it wouldn't work. Kids have to have their little gang wars and their fisticuffs to grow up naturally. We can't force them. Their interests aren't those of adults. In fact, they think adults are pretty dull. No adventure. They can't see that juggling a twenty million gamble on tooling up for a new competitive product is exciting. 
They can't understand working in a dull laboratory to dig something new out of nature's files can be exciting and dangerous. Above all, they can't see that the greatest adventure is the job of bringing kids up to be other adults. They regret the passing of dueling and affairs of honor, but an adult civilization knows better, because the passing of such things is the first step towards a race becoming adult, because it is adopting a new type of thinking where such things have no value. You didn't hit me when I called you names because it made no sense from an adult point of view. Earth doesn't go to war for the same reason. Thank God we grew up just before we got into space where adult thinking is necessary to survival. There had been the kids and their seemingly pointless argument on the street. There had been the curiously distant respect the Meloans had shown him, as if they guessed that only his exterior was similar. There were a lot of things Duke could use to justify believing the director. It made a fine picture, as it was intended to. It must be wonderful to sit here safely while agents do your dangerous work, feeling superior to anyone who shows any courage, he said bitterly. I suppose every clerk and desk jockey out there feeds himself the same type of rationalization. But words don't prove anything. How do you prove the difference between maturity and timidity or smugness? You asked for it, Flannery said simply. The button went down on the control again. The air was suddenly thin and bitingly cold as they looked down on a world torn with war, where a hundred ships shaped like half-disks and unlike anything Duke had seen were mixed up in some maneuver. The button was pushed again, and this time there was a world below that had a port busy with similar ships, not fighting now. A third press brought them onto the surface of a heavy world that seemed to be composed of solid buildings and factories, where the ships were being outfitted with incomprehensible goods. A thing like a pipe-stem man looked up from a series of operations, made a waving motion to them, and abruptly disappeared. "'Did you really think we could be the only adult race in the universe?' Flannery asked. You're looking at the Alar, the closest cultural gestalt to us, and somewhere near our level. Now, something squamous perched on a rock on what seemed to be a barren world. Before it floated bright points of light that were obviously replicas of planets with tiny lines of light between them and a shuttling of glints along the lines. The thing seemed to look at them briefly. A tentacle whipped up and touched Flannery, who sat with his hands off the control box. Without its use, they were abruptly back in their office. Flannery shivered, and there was strain on his face, while Duke felt his mind freeze slowly as if with physical cold. The director cleared his throat. Or maybe we should look at more routine things, though you might consider that we have to get ready for the day when our advancing culture touches on other cultures, because we can't put it off forever. This time they were in a building, like a crude shed, and there were men there, standing in front of a creature that seemed like a human in armor, but chitinous armor that was part of him. The alien suddenly turned, though Duke could now see that they were in a section behind one-way glass. Nevertheless, it seemed to sense them. Abruptly something began pulling at his mind, as if his thoughts were being drained. Flannery hit the button again. Telepathic race, and very immature, he said and there was worry in his voice. Thank God the only one we've found, and out of our immediate line of advance. There were other scenes, a human being who walked endlessly three feet off the floor, fighting against some barrier that wasn't there, with his face frozen in fear while creatures that seemed to be metallic moved about. He found something while working on one of our paradynamic problems, Flannery said. He transported himself there and has been exactly like that ever since, three years now. 
So far our desk jockeys here haven't been able to discover exactly what line he was working on, but they're trying. They were back in the office, and the director laid the control box on the big panel and cut off the power. He swung back to face Duke, his face tired. You'll find a ship waiting to take you to Throm, and a man on board who'll use the trip to brief you if you decide to take the job, Duke. As I said, it's up to you. If you still prefer your wars, come and see me next week, and maybe I can get the recruiting law set aside in your case, since you're really a citizen of Miloa. Otherwise, the ship takes off for Throm in exactly three hours. He led the way back to the elevator and rode up to the lobby. Duke moved out woodenly, but Flannery was obviously going no farther. The old man handed over what was left of the flask, shook Duke's hand quickly, and closed the elevator door. Duke downed the liquor slowly, without thinking. Finally a flicker of thought seemed to stir in his frozen mind. He shook himself and headed down the lobby toward the earth outside. A faint vibration seemed to quiver in the air from below, and he quickened his steps. Outside he shook himself again, signaled a cab, and climbed in. The first liquor store you come to, he told the driver, and then take me to the government spaceport, no matter what I say. Section 10 It was quiet in the underground office of the director, except for the faint sounds of Flannery's arms sliding across each other in an unconscious massaging motion. He caught himself at it and leaned back, his tired facial muscles twitching into a faint smile. Strange things happen to a man when he grows old. His hair turned gray. He thought more of the past, and prosthetic limbs began to feel tired, as if the nerves were remembering also. And the work that had once seemed vitally important in every detail winnowed itself down to a few things, with the rest only bothersome routine. He pulled a thermos of coffee from under the desk and turned back to the confusion of red-coated memoranda on his desk. Then the sound of the elevator coming down caught his attention, and he waited until the door opened. "'Hello, Harding,' he said without turning around. Only one man besides himself had the key to the private entrance. Coffee? Harding took a seat beside him and accepted the plastic cup. Thanks. I tried to call you, but your phone was shut off. Heard the good word? Flannery shook his head. With the matter of the strange ship that had been reported and the problem of what to do with the telepaths both coming to a head, he'd had no time for casual calls. There was no question now that the telepaths had plucked the knowledge of how to build an interstellar drive from the observers' minds in spite of all precautions. And once they broke out into the rest of the galaxy... Var died of a heart attack in the middle of battle, Harding announced, and Cathay and Clumeria sent each other surrender notices the minute the world was official. The damnedest thing I ever heard of. Edmonds came with me, and he's upstairs now, planning a big victory celebration as soon as we can let the word out. It should finish his reorientation. I'll probably get word on it by the time someone has it all organized into a nice official memo, Flannery said. Back him up on that celebration. It's worth a celebration to find out both worlds are that close to maturity. Coming over for bridge tonight? Harding shook his head. I'll be up to my elbows in bills for the relief of Cathay and Clumeria. It's a mess, even if it could be worse. Maybe tomorrow. He dropped the cup onto the desk and turned to the elevator, while Flannery hunted through the memoranda. As he expected, he found a recent one announcing Var's death. He rubbed his arms together as he read it, but there was no new information in it. Then reluctantly he picked up his phone and started to call, scanning for information, just as another bundle of memos came through a small door in the panel. At the sight of the top photo, he put the phone back on its cradle. His face taunted and his arms lay limp as he read through it. The picture was that of one of the half-disc Alar ships. 
The rumors of the strange ship were true enough. One of the Alara race had crossed the gulf between the two expanding cultures and had touched several worlds briefly to land in the biggest city on Patek, the trading center for a whole sector. It had been there two days already before the report to Earth. To make matters worse, it had come because its homeworld had been visited by a foreign ship, from the description apparently from Shugfarth. There was no longer any chance of cutting off the news, since it would be circulating busily through both cultures, and with it must be going a thousand wild schemes by trading adventures for exploration. He'd expected it to happen some day, maybe in fifty years after he was out of office. By then enough of the worlds should have reached maturity to offer some hope of peaceful interpenetration. But now! Victory, he thought bitterly. A small victory. And then this. Or maybe two small victories. If O'Neill worked out as well on Thrum as he seemed to be doing, and if he realized he'd never be satisfied until he could return to Earth to face the problems he now knew existed, Flannery had almost hoped that it would be O'Neill who would handle the problem of cultural interpenetration. The man had ability. But all that was in the past now, along with all the other victories, and in the present, as always, there were larger and larger problems, while full maturity lay forever a little farther on. Then he smiled slowly at himself. There were problems behind him, too, ones whose solutions made these problems possible. And there would always be victory enough. What was victory, after all, but the chance to face bigger and bigger problems without fear? Flannery picked up the phone, and his arms were no longer tired. End of Part 2 of Victory by Lester Del Rey